If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. I think the first misconception is that a lot of people put creativity in the bucket of art, and really creativity is more of a way of approaching life. Problem solving, finding novel solutions, being open to possibilities, all of those skills are involved with your frontal lobe, and really it's a whole brain activity. When you think of your brain, what mental image do you get? For a lot of people, the answer is a computer, a static piece of equipment with a given number of components. However, a groundbreaking new study at the Center for Brain Health at the University of Texas at Dallas suggests that that might be a misconception. On their website, the Center for Brain Health says that every brain is dynamic, adaptable, and can be trained to maximize its performance. That has some exciting implications for growing and boosting creativity. The Center for Brain Health is pioneering a study called the Brain Health Project, and you're invited to be a part of it if you'd like to be. Dr. Julie Frattentoni is a cognitive neuroscientist and head of operations at the Brain Health Project. The following podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please contact a healthcare professional with any clinical questions. Dr. Fred and Tony, before we get to talking about creativity and this landmark study you're currently doing, I would love to know, how did you first discover your passion for helping people improve their brain performance to the point that you became a neuroscientist? Well, the kind of short story is that I started as a speech-language pathologist, and really that was my window into the brain was through language and also really learning a lot about disorder, disease, and injury, and how that affects language in the brain. And really that language is our kind of our window into cognition and those executive functions. So that was how I really got into the neuro side of things, and then chose to pursue a PhD to just better understand how those mechanisms work, or really to learn how much we don't understand about how much they work. And then it was there, so I started my PhD with a professor who was at the Center for Brain Health. And then at the same time, I was doing my clinical fellowship and it was at Brain Health and I got to be part of their high-performance brain training. So that was where I discovered my passion for high-performance and really discovering when you work in you know, a therapy industry or a profession that deals mostly with kind of the exceptional cases, you sort of seem to think it like skews your perception on what you think the majority of people are like, and then just realizing, no, the majority of people are healthy and the majority of people don't actually know this information about how their brain works or how they can use it best. So that's what got me really excited about just empowering people with how you can optimize your own brain health, optimize performance, and really be the best version of yourself. What are some of the things that we don't know about the brain when it comes to creativity? What are some of the common things that happen as the creative process is happening that most people don't realize? Sure. Well, I think the first misconception is that a lot of people put creativity in the bucket of art and really creativity is more of a way of approaching life. And so to see creativity as a way of problem solving, of finding novel solutions, of just being open to possibilities and really seeing options. So I think that's one block that people don't really think about. And all of those skills 
are involved with your frontal lobe and really it's a whole brain activity. So another misconception a lot of people have is that there's this left brain, right brain idea that left brain is this analytical and detailed and right brain is creative and there's really no scientific evidence to support that notion. So people are usually surprised by that, but really it's your whole brain working together in many, many different networks, depending on what you're doing. And because creativity is not any one thing, there's not any one spot in the brain or any one network that does that by itself. Do we know what happens during the aha moment when suddenly you get a great idea? We do. We have some insight from, there is one study that looked at kind of these word association puzzles. And so an example of that would be, oh my gosh, I don't have it off the top of my head. Basically you're given three words and then you're asked to find one word that would match with all three of them. And so there's a few different, two different ways to go about solving this. If you've ever, they do these in the newspaper or in magazines sometimes, but you could kind of start to go through and just try a bunch of different words. That's one strategy. And another strategy is to kind of just look at it and then see if something pops into your head. And so that moment when that right word pops into your head that fits with the other three, that is what we'd call like creative insight. And when that happens, there's a part of your brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, sort of kind of in the middle of your head deep. And there's higher activation there when you have those kind of insight aha moments. As people live longer, I've heard a few people say, oh, I'm getting older, I'm not so creative. I've even heard a couple of people say, I'm just not the creative type. What are your responses to comments like these? Yeah, I mean, I think that mindset has a lot to do with it. So what we can or can't do or what we tell ourselves we can or can't do essentially becomes true. So I think having those blocks of, you know, maybe an unfortunate experience as a child or just early on, you know, in school or whether, you know, and being told that you're not creative and then kind of believing that tape and letting that play out. And so then when you have opportunities or rather you wouldn't take advantage of opportunities as they come up. So you never really strengthen that muscle. But I would also challenge people to say, okay, well, you know, kind of like the examples I gave earlier, are you good at problem solving? Are you good at, you know, being able to see things from different perspectives? Those are aspects of creativity. And also to the person that feels like, you know, okay, maybe I haven't exercised that muscle very much. Maybe I'm in a very analytical field. But even so, I would even have a hard time trying to even think of profession where you would never use creativity. It's involved in pretty much everything. And even, you know, your hard sciences, your Nobel Prize winners, they're most all of them actually have an artistic side and have spoken about there's a book called Sparks of Genius where he profiles a bunch of different Nobel Prize winners and how they all had both this, you know, math and science background, but then also this artistic side that helped them really be able to put information together in new ways to solve these problems and make really big discoveries and advances in their field. So I think for anyone that feels like, oh, I really haven't exercised that, or I don't consider myself a creative person, that it is a skill that can be practiced and learned. And so it can always be strengthened no matter really how old you are or what you do. There's room for that. Sparks of Genius. And do you happen to have the name of that author? It is by... Robert Root Bernstein. Robert Root Bernstein, Sparks of Genius, definitely something to add to our reading list. What are some of the ways as a neuroscientist that you have seen your own creativity enhanced while working with the Brain Health Project? Oh, wow. I would say being a scientist is being a problem solver. So whether it's trying to 
you know, figure out the best way, the best study design for your experiment, or just the best way to get your participants to engage and follow the protocol and and have compliance, that there's always elements of having to find options or see possibilities. I think I just personally am an artist and love to paint and do abstract art and getting into watercolor and working with resin is something I really enjoy. And so anyway, having that outlet, I think, or it's really not an outlet, but rather that sort of that, whether you realize it or not, I think helps helps you not in the direct sense of, you know, maybe doing the science, but there's a lot of good things that happen when we create, when we step away from the thing we're really focused on and that then allows your brain to work and have those insights, right? It's kind of when you step back a little bit or when you're, people often have their aha moments, you know, in the shower or when they're walking the dog or, you know, out for a run and not actively trying to solve that problem. So I think doing other things in multiple modalities is a really good thing. But back to your specific question about, you know, the projects that I'm on, another big aspect of my job is actually the user experience or what it looks like to be engaged or want them to keep coming back or to participate in our cognitive training and and to sustain and practice it. And so there's a lot of elements of, you know, how do we get people excited and surprise them and make them curious? And so constantly having to really challenge myself there in terms of getting to incorporate creativity and and use those skills. Let's get some people excited to make them curious right now. Would you tell me the story of the Brain Health Project? Absolutely. So the Brain Health Project is really a landmark study that we are seeking to define, measure, and improve brain health across the lifespan. Typically, the brain is always studied in the context of injury or disease. We don't have a good solid definition of what a healthy brain is because what is healthy for me is very different than what may be healthy for you. There's a broad range of that. And so this is our, we are seeking, if you're familiar with the Framingham study, what that did for heart health back in the fifties and sixties, and that study is still going on today. But what we learned about just lifestyle and habits that people do to prevent heart attacks. And so what we're trying to understand is what are healthy brain, healthy lifestyle and habits that people can adopt and practice now to prevent dementia, to prevent, you know, decline even. And so this notion that as we get older, our brains just begin to decline is does not need to be the case. We don't need to accept that status quo. And so there are things we can proactively do today to build a healthier brain. And so the project really is doing exactly that. It's teaching people strategies that they can incorporate in their daily life so that their brain can be healthier, they can improve their performance. And so the bird's eye view of it is to participate. You take what we call brain health index, you get your own an assessment, and this is really just a benchmark every six months. It's a 10 year long study. So just tracking that progress over time. And it's just like getting an annual physical. It's crazy that we do one for our body, but not for our brain. And so doing that every six months, you get your own brain health coach and you get to have a quarterly coaching call. So every three months, checking in with someone to help keep you motivated and then ongoing access to our training and our brain healthy habits. And so this is all virtual. So it's all on our online platform. And we're really excited to be able to really scale the work that we do so that pretty much anyone with a device and internet can access these resources. This is a free study, free Mm -hmm. participation. How do people qualify if they'd like to be a part of it? So you can go to thebrainhealthproject.org and there's a lot of information there. There's FAQs. There's more information about the study, but there's also a sign up button right on that page. So people can sign up. And then there is a screening process because we are looking at healthy, just 
I say generally healthy, and that's a very vague term, but essentially if you have ADD or depression, that's okay. But something more significant, like a diagnosis of say Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis, that would maybe disqualify you. So you'll go through the screening questions and it'll let you know if you qualify or don't. If you do qualify, then you'll proceed to the consent form, which is standard research protocol, just letting you know what you're agreeing to participating in research. And then you'll jump into the study. But if you don't qualify, it'll let you know that you don't qualify. And then I would say for anyone who doesn't qualify, but wants to learn more, we have a lot of other resources at the Center for Brain Health that you can look into. So it doesn't have to end for you there. Suppose someone does sign up. What are they going to experience right now? They just signed up and what happens? Yes. So the first thing we'll ask you to do is fill out a series of assessments. This is what's going to make up your brain health index. So your brain health index is a a holistic look at your brain. So it includes areas of, of course, cognitive. So things like attention and memory, and then higher level skills like innovation and reasoning and being strategic with your attention. We're also going to look at aspects of daily life. So responsibilities, diet, exercise, sleep, We'll ask about stress. Then we'll ask about your well-being, quality of life, resilience, mood, and then social interaction, things like compassion, social support, social engagement. And so all of those elements are ways that you use your brain that are important. And this is really the first kind of holistic picture that you can get just a snapshot in time of your brain health. So we'll take those assessments and then we actually have real live people that there's a, a hand scoring element to it. You'll get your index score back in a couple of days. And then you'll be asked to schedule a coaching call where they will then explain your results in more detail, give you personalized recommendations, and then you can start the training. So those are the first steps. What's one example of some training they might give you? Let's say that you're a more introverted person because a lot of people are. And are they going to necessarily assess you as not being as healthy? Sometimes people think an introvert isn't as healthy as an extrovert. I say nonsense to that one. But what would they do? Yeah, I agree with that being nonsense. I'm an introvert and I don't think that makes any difference. But I do think that there are things that all people need and just how much of it is going to vary person to person. And that's a lot of what we're trying to discover by doing this study is really understanding what are the different needs that people have. And and it is, it's interventional in the sense that, you know, giving certain people nudges, whereas I might need, you know, I might do well and say, oh, I want you to remind me every day. And that's going to push me to be better where someone else is like, you know, just ping me once a week and I'll do it on my own. And that's what drives me. The training that we do is strategy-based. So we call them tactical brain strategies, but essentially we don't want to be additive to someone's day because we know that everyone has enough going on on their plate. So We want to give you different ways of approaching what you do. So not to give you more to do, but instead just take what you're already doing and approach it in a new way that can help you be more efficient or less stressed. So one example of this is what we call our brain power of one. And so a lot of people don't know that multitasking is actually very toxic for your brain health. Your brain was made to just do one thing at a time. So a lot of people are adding a lot of unnecessary stress. They're creating more errors. It's taking them longer to do things when they're thinking they're being more efficient by toggling between multiple things and on the phone while they're trying to write an email and everyone knows that doesn't usually end well. But so one of our strategies, we call it the brain power of one. And so it's really practicing doing one thing at a time. So first of all, giving you that science to know why this is toxic to the brain, telling you what the strategy is, and then giving more practical parameters around what that looks like. And it's going to look a little different for everybody, but really blocking out time to be able to do that. And so making sure you have, you know, 20 to 45 minutes that you can block out that chunk to really focus on whatever's most important that you need to push forward that day. So getting into really being just overall strategic. So that's one example of something that we would talk about in our training. 
when you say the science of what makes this toxic to the brain, what's happening in my brain? If right now I were listening to you, but maybe I'm typing and maybe I'm on the phone, that would make me a very rude interviewer, but what would that be doing to my brain? Sure. Well, because those are two very different systems, right? Say the visual watching me here, auditory listening and processing what I'm saying, and then also trying to process and type or listen to a second speaker. So really what your brain is doing is it involves different networks. And so your brain is having to rapidly toggle back and forth between those two networks to keep doing that. And so no matter what, you're missing bits and pieces of one or the other as you jump back and forth. So that just creates a lot of stress. The brain is designed to, the brain uses majority of the energy of your body, but it also, because it uses so much energy, it's really good at conserving energy and it likes to conserve energy. So it wants to be efficient. So by doing that, it really puts a lot of added stress on the brain, increases your cortisol levels over time. That chronic stress can be not great for your neurons. They actually, literally your neurons can die with too much too much cortisol or just that really chronic level of it. Now, short bursts of that, when you you know have adrenaline or need to perform, those are good, but just kind of those chronic low levels can be really toxic. Let's talk for a minute about stress, cortisol, and creativity. There's a lot of a stress element today in life, I shouldn't say post-pandemic, as we deal with the pandemic, that people can't really control. How do you maintain creativity and a healthy brain when all these outside factors are happening? Oh, that's a great question. So when we are stressed, we're kicking into our fight or flight system, our sympathetic nervous system. This involves the anterior cingulate cortex, again, narrows our options. So it's essentially, it wants to give you the fewest options when you're stressed. So that's what you got. You got fight, flight, or freeze. You don't want to have to consider a whole lot of creative options in those moments that you're stressed. If you were really facing a crisis situation nowadays, it's more of a stress of deadlines or, you know, pressure that we put on ourselves or it's not life or death, but because we are in that state of sort of panic, it is harder to see more options. It's kind of that more narrow, you actually get tunnel vision. And so to be more creative, really regulating stress and regulating your finding more balance between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system is important. So things like breathing, taking breaks, stepping away from your desk for a moment, taking a walk around the building, getting some water, you know, little things you can do, even looking out at open spaces. If you can look out at the window, hopefully you have a view of some nature maybe, or open spaces, if not looking even at a a picture can be helpful or just If you're in kind of a cramped office, just getting outside for a minute, but confined spaces have been found to actually decrease creativity and more open spaces help to promote that. So I think there's something to do with just, you know, that calm, that rest feeling, and then allowing your mind to kind of open up to more possibilities because you're not in that fight or flight mode. In addition to the Brain Health Project, the Center for Brain Health hosts special events, including a free monthly speaker series called Sips and Science. So we host these once a month. They are virtual, and I believe we'll be going back to in-person in the fall, but it'll be a hybrid model. So if you're not in the Dallas area, you can still attend virtually, but we host them once a month. The idea is we bring in scientists really from all over the country that are experts at different things. And so the one coming up is on August 19th, I believe. And it is, yes, it's a Thursday night at 7 p.m. And 
It's David Eagleman. So he just came out with the book called Live Wired, which is all about neuroplasticity and how our brain is truly, um, it's not hardwired, it's live wired in the sense that, like I talked about, everything that we're doing in real time, our brain is reacting to and really being shaped and changed because of that. So yeah, he's going to be talking about neuroplasticity, his book, and he is just an incredible scientist and science communicator, and he has other books as well. But yeah, so would be, and these are free to join. So the link to register is at the Center for Brain Health on our events page. And yeah, we are thrilled to be hosting him. That link is brainhealth.utdallas.edu. And neuroplasticity is a new word for me because I tended to think before we had our conversation that you're born with what you're born with and your brain is what it is. And that's not true, apparently, from our conversation. Absolutely. And I love getting to debunk that myth because I think that's really the narrative that people have been told and believing for a really long time. And so we're excited to change the conversation around that. You also had a wonderful video on your website. And I wish I remembered the name of the doctor or researcher from, I would assume, Ireland, talking about how you can change your perception of events and change the actual neuroscience of your brain. Wow. Would you tell me more about that too? Yeah, I think you're probably thinking of Dr. Ian Robertson, who is a fantastic scientist and he's written several books. He has a new book out called The Confidence Trick. But really, I think the example you might be thinking of is that our physiological reaction to say anxiety is actually the same as excitement. So think about like my heart rate increases, my hands might get a little bit sweaty. So really to just shift your mindset from, oh, I'm anxious and worried to, okay, I'm excited. There's an opportunity here my body's preparing to perform at its best. And so really just the way that you choose to see that and really kind of get your mindset around what you're doing. When you feel excited to do something, there's a different energy than when you're kind of dreading it and feeling anxious. I love that because you actually asked on Instagram, who loves public speaking? And most people are going to say, ah, no, not me, but it'd be fun to think of it. This is going to be a blast. I'm getting ready to do my best. That would be great for anybody who has a presentation to give, which is, well, it's just about everybody that listens to the podcast. Yeah. What about technology? A lot of times we tend to use technology and we tend to use it in such a way that I'm not sure I'm being very creative when I'm playing this computer game. What would be your recommendation to make it something that boosts creativity as opposed to something that's a brain drain? So I think, yes, you touched on something really good there, which is it's all kind of in your approach. I do think that there are, kind of like I mentioned earlier, there's times where mind wandering is a good thing. The default mode network, sometimes called the imagination network, is really important for creativity. We spend about 30% of our day in this sort of daydream default mode network state, which is a good thing. And so I think sometimes playing games or if it's a game, especially that allows you to interact with other players or other people that you know, just being exposed, like life exposure, so whether that's through technology or not, is also really good. It just gives your brain more input, more things to work with, more ideas to connect in different ways. So yeah, just having more experience. I think the toxic route of that would be if you're sitting on that for hours and then you know missing out on social interaction or not doing other things. But I think a little bit of that is great. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, so much of this is balanced, but I think just this idea of exploration, being, you know, feeling adventurous, getting exposed to new ideas, learning something new, new learning is, is a huge piece to creativity and the brain loves to take in new information and 
connect it in different ways and, and recognize patterns also. So I think there are certain games that can do that. And, but I wouldn't, I don't know that there's a specific, you know, game or something that you can play that it's like, oh, this will boost your creativity. But I think it's sort of unique in how each of us may be inspired and how each of us have different unique problems we need to solve or things that we're doing in our jobs or in our lives. When you reference learning new things, what are some of your favorite resources for learning something new that boosts your own creativity? Oh, I love that. I recently got the app called Blinkist. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, I love, I love listening to podcasts. I love listening to these are Blinkist for anyone who doesn't know is kind of these condensed audiobooks where you sort of, it's like a 15 minute version of the book. And I like it because then I can tell if I want to then invest and really read the whole book, but it kind of gives you like the key points. But I think just getting to hear a variety of things, hear different perspectives is huge. So I love, yeah, I mentioned listening to podcasts. And then I think just, like I said, life experience. So I know we, a lot of us have been confined to our houses for a long time, but I think reading is such a good one. And then just, you know, talking, asking good questions. I mean, just like you are getting to know people, even people that you feel like you may already know very well in your family or neighbors, but digging into their stories, just being fascinated by how they've, you know, overcome different things or just hearing their stories of resilience or things that they've fought their way through and getting to learn from ways that they've done it and thinking about how that could maybe apply to my life. I think that's a really great application of kind of just using the world around you. And also nature. Nature is great for this. There have been studies that show that spending more time in nature is associated with more creativity or higher levels of that. And I think it has two things. One is, like I mentioned, kind of stepping away from day-to-day life, getting just even stepping away from your desk, but getting out of the daily grind helps with that. But then also another part of creativity that we didn't talk about is the incubation phase. And so this is where you kind of start on an idea and you need to just let it cook without really actively working on it. And so being away in nature is great for that. Taking a walk is great for that. Sleeping, taking a nap, getting quality sleep each night has a huge role in that as well. What's one of your own favorite experiences with the incubation phase where a creative idea hits you where you didn't expect it? I love this question. So one of my friends, she always jokes, so she owns her own small business. And so when she would need to come up with for some of her social media marketing, you know, come up with a clever caption or, you know, headline or what do we want to call our new, our new drink or this new whatever. She would always tell me in the evening and she'd be like, Hey, I need this. And she would just plant the seed and she'd be like, I know you're going to wake up with it tomorrow morning. And so like, I just, I would always, I would wake up the next morning, like after sleeping. And then I would just kind of be, you know, getting ready for my day and it would just pop into my head. And I would just have, I'd be like, Oh, it should be this. And so, so for me, a good night's sleep has produced some of my best ideas. (laughs) I wonder why that happens. I know so many people that would put a book next to, like a little notebook next to their bed because they'll have a dream or they'll think of something as they are sleeping and it just whack out of nowhere comes up. I'm going to do a shameless plug. You have a podcast coming up. Thank you. Yes. So I've started a podcast. It's called Better Brain. And so I'm sharing brain science and brain tips. A lot of what we talked about today, these things so that, and they're going to be bite-sized. So the trailer is out right now. I'm working on kind of batching a season, but yeah, they're going to be five to 10 minute long episodes. And just, I'll just focus in on kind of one topic and keep it really, really friendly for just everyday language. So My goal is to make neuroscience really accessible for everyone and to get people empowered and excited about the things that they can do just in day-to-day life to make their brain better. 
better brain and when does that come out? Oh, I don't have a date yet, but I'll just have to say stay tuned. And if you follow along on my Instagram, which is just at Dr. Julie Frattantoni, I will post updates on there. So as soon as it launches, they will be the first to know. Dr. Frattantoni, what has been one of your absolute favorite experiences so far with the research project? Ooh, I think I just love getting to hear just stories of transformation and how it really has made a difference, especially over this past year when a lot of our participants have been dealing with job loss or just excessive stress or having to navigate, you know, challenges with working remotely and childcare. And I mean, we've heard, you know, just, just incredible ways that people have really been able to take strategies, learn them, apply them, and then come back and say, I feel more like myself, or, you know, I'm able to get through the day and not be as anxious or stressed. I feel more empowered to really achieve my goals. That's really what makes it so exciting. It's, it's getting to see people's lives, quality of life improve. And then also just knowing that we're collecting such incredibly valuable data that we're going to just better understand how we can encourage and, and really form, you know, public policy, hopefully, and public health for people and generations to come from what we learn from this in terms of just what are best practices to keep your brain healthy your entire life. So that way, when you live to be 90 or 100, that your brain is going to keep up with your body. That would be the most incredible gift. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that people can opt out of the study at any time and also that you have some pretty strict privacy concerns in place. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So just like any research study, you can always opt out at any time. And we make that easy just in your profile section, you just opt out. And then of course, data and protecting your private information is our highest priority. So that's something that we follow the university review board standards. There's a lot of protocols in place. We even have a certificate of confidentiality, which is an extra layer of protection for that data. So it's not shared with anybody without your consent. And really the the premise of what we're doing is it's just researchers and scientists that are just trying to learn. So it's, yeah, you get to be part of something big, which is really exciting. This is an exciting study. Finally, if people could only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you like them to take away from you and the Brain Health Project? I think it's just the fact that there is no ceiling, that there truly is infinite potential to improve across our whole lives and that it's really never too early or too late to start. And so I just love to get people empowered by this notion that you are in control of your own brain. You don't have to accept, you know, what your genetics say or what your family history is, but really that based on your own lifestyle, your habits, your environment, that there's a lot that you can do to impact your own health, your own innovation and creativity. And we are offering tools to do that. So I hope that you come check it out. Dr. Pat and Tony, thank you for your time today. Thank you. You and I have been listening to Dr. Julie Frantantoni, cognitive neuroscientist and head of operations at the Brain Health Project at the Brain Health Center of the University of Texas at Dallas. If you'd like to find out more about participating in the Brain Health Project, go to thebrainhealthproject.org. That's thebrainhealthproject.org. And get a look at the additional resources the Center for Brain Health has available, including their free lecture series, Sips and Science, at brainhealth.utdallas.edu. That's brainhealth.utdallas.edu. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. 
Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.